Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. The outline of this message, speaker, message title, and series can be found in the show notes or the details page. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or on our church website at Bethlehem505.com. And now, here is the message. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 3 as we today conclude uh, our series called 316. Galatians 316, God's amazing seed promise. Now I suspect if before this 316 series began, I had invited all of you to vote for your top five choices out of the 60 books of the Bible, which have at least three chapters, Galatians 3.16 probably would not have gotten a single vote from any of you. Unless some of you thought it sounded like farming and gardening because it talks about seeds. And now that I think about it, uh, some of you... (laughs) might have selected it just to make it difficult for me to prepare. (laughs) Because I know some of you. And if that was your reasoning, you would have been very successful. Because this is a challenging passage. My actual thought, the first time I considered this as part of the series, was, oh my, what do I do with this? (laughs) How do I make this (laughs) understandable and hopefully interesting and even relevant to life. One commentary I looked at this week on Galatians chapter 3 began with these words. No kidding, first sentence. We now encounter one of the most difficult passages in all the Apostle Paul's correspondence. So I felt like switching immediately to something like Hezekiah 3.16 instead. There is no Hezekiah 3.16, I'm just testing you, okay? There is no book of the Bible called Hezekiah, okay. But in a sense, Galatians 3.16 is a whole lot like the first verse we looked at in this series, John 3.16. It returns to the same grand theme of that first verse in our series, John 3.16, which says, as most of you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But in Galatians 3.16, that theme is not quite as obvious or as simple, because here in Galatians 3.16, we have to include a fuller look at the complete Bible story to see the real message of this verse. But it's worth the effort. Real quickly, let me give you an overview of the context of the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians, was a letter the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul to write to a group of Christians and congregations in an area called Galatia. During his first missionary journey there, Paul had led many people to Christ and he'd helped start new congregations in several places. But sometime later, some of the Jewish Christians 
had gone there to those towns where Paul had been and told the new Gentile Christians that they were incomplete. In a sense, that they had to first convert to Judaism and be circumcised and all that before they could be real Christians. So basically, the book of Galatians is Paul's systematic argument to deal with that, almost in debate format, to convince them that all of us, Jew or Gentile, are only saved through our faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, period. So today I want us to look at the big picture of the Bible message of grace and salvation, beginning with our text, and I want us to see this. I want us to see that God always, always, always keeps His promises. So if you get your bulletin out on the front page, and one more time, we're going to read this verse together. And again, if you've read this in preparation for today, you might even be dreading this message. <laughs> Here's what it says, Galatians 3.16. Read with me. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Here's the first thing we need to understand about this whole journey, and it is God's desire. You know what God's desire is? God's desire, more than anything else, is that we have a personal relationship with Him and live in His presence forever. That's God's desire. That's God's passionate desire. The eternal God of the heavens loves us and wants us near Him, and it's the very reason He created us. He made us, Genesis 1 says, in his image as spiritual beings with the ability to have a conscious relationship with God. He wanted to share life with us. He wanted to share himself with us. And if you think about it, that is our primary reason for existence. It's what places you and me at a higher level than the animal kingdom. We are made in God's image. God desires a relationship with us. Now, all that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But we have a problem. And our problem is this. We broke that relationship and separated ourselves from God. See, it all began to unfold in, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve had had a perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Creator. But one day, God's enemy, Satan, the devil, got them to question what God had told them. And he convinced them that they would be much happier and much better off if they did things their own way rather than God's. They fell into the trap and they disobeyed God by eating of the tree he said not to eat from and touch. And with that one act of rebellion, the devil began a destructive ball rolling that is still crushing lives today. And what's worse, the entire human race followed Adam and Eve's example, and many things have resulted in this world. Emptiness, guilt, pain, greed, drug abuse, gossip, alcoholism, suicide, violence, adultery, sexual sin, transgenderism, oppression, racism, abortion, disease, and most of all, death. Not a pretty picture. Not a pretty picture. Folks, we have a problem. We have a sin problem. 
There are consequences on this earth because of sin. And worst of all, there is a separation between us and God. Now, sadly, we often in our lives misdiagnose what the real problem is, and sometimes even in church. I think I've told you before about the revival I read about. A guy named Bubba went to a revival. He listened to the sermon. At the end of the sermon, the preacher issued an invitation for anybody to come up for prayer, and he would pray for them for healing or whatever they needed. And Bubba went forward. Preacher says, Bubba, what do you want me to pray for? Bubba says, I need you to pray for my hearing. So the preacher had him kneel down. He knelt down with him. He put his hand on one ear. He put his hand, other hand on his head. He prayed with all his heart with faith that God would heal and help Bubba's hearing. After they finished the prayer, he says, so Bubba, how's your hearing now? Bubba says, I don't know, preacher. My hearing ain't till next Wednesday. Well, thankfully, God has no such limitations in discernment. And you and I have a far deeper problem than physical hearing or legal hearings. We have a far deeper problem. Our sin has separated us from God. So how does God react to that separation? What does he do? That brings us to our second fact about God, and it's God's response. And you know what his response was? He reached out to us. Isn't that amazing? We're the ones that messed up the relationship. He's the one that came back. Genesis 3, I love verses 8 and 9, because I happen to believe, based on these verses, that before Adam and Eve sinned, that God used to take some kind of a form, which God can do whatever he wants, and he would actually come and hang out with Adam and Eve in the garden on a regular basis. And this is the reason I believe that. But notice what it says. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? What I want you to notice is who was hiding. God wasn't hiding from anybody. They were hiding from God. Now I want you to notice who came looking. God did. You see, God came reaching out to us sinners. And folks, at its very heart, that is the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion is human beings trying desperately to find some God or some power out there to help them. Christianity is where God personally came reaching out to us. Huge difference. God still, despite their sin, loved Adam and Eve, even though he was incredibly disappointed in them. But even though God came searching, <laughs> we still have a problem. Our problem is that we humans continue to sin after Adam and Eve did. So we read in Genesis 4 about the first murder, Cain killing Abel. In Genesis 5, we read that list of how each of them died just like God had said what happened when they sinned. Then we get to Genesis 6 and following, where the world became so terribly corrupt that God sent a flood and started over. But he still chose a faithful family to carry on the human race, just like he had intended. And more than that, even back in the Garden of Eden, where their sin had begun, God offered a plan to restore us 
Even in Genesis 3, amidst the time of doling out the consequences, God says, let me tell you a promise. And that brings us to our third point, God's promise. Now, what was God's promise? <laughs> Sounds strange. It was a seed. God says, I got something for you. I promise, it's a seed. <laughs> now, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Probably about as exciting as the kid that gets up on Christmas morning and the parents explain there's only one present this year. It's a great big box. Starts opening it, and there's another box inside that, another box inside that. And finally gets down to the last little box, and there's a seed in it. And his parents say, how do you like it? <laughs> that may be how we react when we initially hear that God's promise to us, his gift to us, was a seed. Galatians 3.16, three times, uses the word seed. The Greek word that's translated seed is actually sperma. Guess what English word we get from that? Sperm. The word seed is referring to offspring or descendants. So what seed, what offspring was God talking about? Well, first of all, he was talking about the seed of the woman, Eve in particular. Genesis 3, as God is laying out the consequences of their sin, this is going to happen because you sin. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. He also gave a promise. And what I believe, and I've often said from this stage, is this, probably, I think, the second most important verse in the Bible after Genesis 1.1. Genesis 3.15, God turns to Satan, the serpent, and says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, this seed of the woman, would will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, God was promising right after the first human sin that a Savior would someday come, a descendant of Eve, the seed of Eve in the human family. He would fight Satan and would be hurt by the devil, but ultimately he would destroy the devil, dying in the process to pay the penalty for our sins. God was saying, I'm going to send a rescuer, a Savior, a deliverer. And as I've said often, the rest of the Bible records how God carried out the promise he made in Genesis 3.15. Every verse that follows that till the last verse of the Bible is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and how God carried it out. The seed of the woman is the answer to our problem, but God also narrowed it down a bit more. It, this descendant would not just be a descendant of Eve and the human race, but would be a seed of Abraham. So God chose to work out his plan through a particular man and his descendants. And Genesis 12 is where we meet that man who's then, at that point, called Abram instead of Abraham. And it says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And this last part, the Jews for centuries ignored. <laughs> he says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All nations would be blessed through Abraham and his family. It's repeated in Genesis 18. It's repeated in Genesis 22. And in that midst of that, in chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham about this process. And again, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, 6, says, Abram believed God and he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. That verse is repeated in the New Testament in Romans 4, 3, Romans 4, 22 and 23, and in Galatians 3, 6, 
maybe across the page from where you are. It says, consider Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, God would bless Abraham and his seed, his descendants. That was God's promise. But here's a great fact to remember, point C. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Around our text in verse 15 and 17, it talks about a covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. And back in Numbers chapter 23 in verse 19, God spoke about himself through a reluctant prophet named Balaam and said, God is not human that he should lie, nor not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God's character, his truth, his purpose, his love, his essence do not change. Unlike we human beings. He is consistent, he is dependable, he is constant, he is faithful. God is the ultimate promise keeper. So Romans 4 talks all about the promises by God to Abraham and Abraham believing those promises. And Galatians 3 talks all about those promises. Matter of fact, in this section alone from verse 15 to verse 29 in Genesis 3, it uses the word promise or promises eight different times. Galatians 3 and Romans 4, therefore, are all about having faith in God's promises. Now, that sounds good, but guess what? You knew it was coming. We've got another problem. You and I still have a problem, and that is that we're not Abraham or Jesus. See, the promise was to Abraham and his seed. Verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Well, let's just face it. Literally, you and I are not children of Abraham by the flesh. I don't know of anyone in this room, including me, who is a Jewish descendant of Abraham's son Isaac. I don't know of anybody in this room who is an Arab, who is an, a, an Arab descendant of Ishmael, Abraham's other son. And also, we're not Jesus. Galatians 3.16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds meaning many people, but unto your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. See, Jesus is actually the fulfillment of that promise, not the Jewish nation and not Ishmael's Arab descendants. So, here's the sad bottom line. God and Abraham and Jesus can live happily ever after in heaven, and everyone else is left out in the cold at this point. Right? Well, except maybe Peter, because while well, we know Jesus told him to give him the keys to the kingdom and, and all that, which reminds me, um, Brian, about a politician who went to a, po a political uh, campaign stop one day, and uh, some guy yells at him, I wouldn't vote for you if you were St. Peter himself, to which this quick-thinking politician says, if I was St. Peter, you wouldn't be in my district. <laughs> Maybe you can use that someday. And guess what? we would not be in Peter's district either. Because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. But maybe there's another way. Maybe we still have a chance. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the joy of Christianity, that there's another chance we have. God's promise was not only to Jesus, but it was about Jesus in Galatians 3.16 says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, um, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. 
So we've seen God's desire, we've seen God's response, we've seen God's promise, and now, thankfully, we see God's Son. What did John 3.16 say? Beginning of our series, beginning of this message, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, Jesus is the seed in Galatians 3.16. He's the one who fulfilled hundreds of specific Old Testament prophecies about him. Jesus is the seed or descendant of Eve who would defeat the devil once and for all, Genesis 3. Jesus is the branch from the family of David, Jeremiah 23. Jesus is the ruler who would be uh, born in Bethlehem, Micah the prophet said in chapter 5. He is the crucified one from Psalm 22. He is the priest king from Psalm 110. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace from Isaiah 9. And he is the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, and the son of David, Matthew 1 in the genealogy. Jesus Christ is the seed who was promised. And that's really good news for us. But Jesus was also something else. And this is why it's good news. Jesus is the substitute. Jesus became the substitute sacrifice who died in our place for our sin. That's called grace. That's what we sang about this morning. Grace. Grace means that Jesus got what we deserved, which was death, and we got what he deserved, which is blessing from God, grace. Jesus came, John the Baptist said in John 1.29, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or in 1 John, the epistle, in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But then I love 1 John 2, 1 and 2, because it talks about even after we sin. It says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Autumn J. Conley expressed this very well in a poem called Innocent Blood. Out of the darkness of Calvary's tree, the day when the sun couldn't shine, the innocent blood flowing down to the ground was given in place of mine. A crown made of thorns upon the head of my Savior, Lord so dear, drew innocent blood to run down his face. He paid for my sins with his tears. The spikes hammered into his hands and his feet. All he had he gave, and in scarlet streams of his innocent blood he saved me from the grave. The greatest gift my Savior gave on the cross it could be found the greatest gift was the innocent blood that once soaked Calvary's ground. God accepted a substitute death for our sins. And that's why point C is true. Jesus is not just the seed. He is not just the substitute. But he is the Savior. And that's why on the very night of his birth, the the angelic announcement was all about that in Luke 2, verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news 
that will be, cause great joy for all the people. Why? Because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ or Messiah, the Lord. See, Galatians proclaims that we can be saved through Jesus' death on the cross. No matter what our nationality, no matter what our race, no matter who or what we are, and even no matter how foolish or vulgar or terrible our sin is, Jesus' blood covers our sins. See, that's, that's the answer to our problem. Have you noticed that all through the outline, I'd give you good news on the main point, and it'd say, but our problem. <laughs> Next good news, our problem, though. Next good news, but our problem. But notice the last main point when we get to God's Son. It does not say our problem. It says our hope. Our hope. In Christ, we receive God's promises. In other words, here it is, we become a child of Abraham in Christ. We become the new Israel. <laughs> Romans 4 describes this process in chapter, or, uh, starting in verse 20 down to verse 25. It says, yet, it's talking about Abraham, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. There it is again. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. Also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Then we won't go over there, but in Ephesians 1, over and over, keep saying you're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, writing to Christians. So that means this is true. Please notice this. That means that a person who is in Christ is a child of Abraham. A person who is in Christ is a child of Abraham. Now look over in Galatians 3, verse 6 to verse 9. It says, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, in other words, the non-Jews, by faith, and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And here it is from Genesis 12. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Then verse 14 says, He redeemed us, Jesus, in order uh, that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Verse 29, Genesis, or Galatians 3, ends with this verse. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Wow. God keeps his promises. Now look again at our text. Verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That's now us. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And if we're in Christ, that includes us. God keeps his promises. God in his amazing grace offers us complete salvation and forgiveness. 
There's a painting that was made uh, quite a few years ago, probably in the last 20, I think. It's simply entitled Forgiven. And we're going to put this up on the screen. It's a painting by Thomas Blackshear II. And as you just look at the features on this uh, painting, let me give you some descriptions. The painting's dark background signifies sin. It is the world of darkness within us that the light of Jesus Christ seeks to invade. The mallet and the spike in the man's hands are reminders that each of us is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The contemporary man in the painting is in despair and ready to fall to the ground. His expression carries the pain of sin and his helplessness reflects total dependence on Jesus Christ for his salvation. The figure upholding the repentant man is a picture of God's grace. He is the ever-present Jesus, ready to receive and redeem all who have been broken by the power of sin. The setting is Calvary, the place where Jesus was crucified. It is here that he died to redeem us to God. It is here that each sinner must come to be forgiven. Jesus' hands in this painting are slightly oversized, showing strength. They remind us that we cannot rely on our own strength. We are totally dependent upon the Lord. The halo of light around Jesus' head signifies his holiness and divinity. The wounded hand of Jesus over the man's heart upholds him and reveals God's desire to change all hearts by the power of his love. The white robe that Jesus is wearing speaks to us of his righteousness. It is the garment with which we must all be clothed. The blood that flows from Jesus' feet signifies the washing away of our sin and the, our justification before God. The lilies remind us of the Lord's beauty and our worship and adoration of him. The lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, and the lilies also remind us, represent our personal growth in the Lord. Because he is alive in us, his life will produce fruit for his glory. So folks, that is each of us in that painting. That is each of us in that painting. Galatians 3, down toward the end tells how we respond to that. Verse 26 of Galatians 3 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. No matter who we are, what we've done in our life, how vulgar and horrible our sin is or was, when we come to Jesus in trusting faith and submit to his absolute lordship over our life in baptism, this passage tells us we are clothed with Christ. We're covered by his blood. We put on his robe of righteousness and God looks at us and doesn't see our sin, but he sees that robe of righteousness in the blood of Jesus. And it tells us here that we are united in Christ, regardless of race or status or sex or any other attribute of ours. It tells us we are Abraham's seed and that we are heirs of God's promise. So folks, I'm glad I did not wimp out and avoid Galatians 3.16. And I'm also glad I did not wimp out when I had the opportunity in 1968 to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and be baptized into him. There's a question at the bottom of the page this morning. 
Are you in Christ and enjoying the promises of God? See, that's the ultimate question all of us need to ask. Am I in Christ and thus am I enjoying the promises of God? So we can if we're in Christ. No, we're not perfect and sinless like him. No, we're not Abraham, but we are Abraham's seed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just a moment, we're going to be singing a song that reminds us that there is power, (laughs) power in the blood of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We can be forgiven. I think I said in my email yesterday that... um, I would not have been able to preach all that I said in this message were it not for the teachings of Dr. Jack Cottrell, who helped me fully and completely understand, as much as we can in this life, grace. It's ironic that this sermon hit this weekend. It was Friday night. Uh, he had the opportunity after a long battle with cancer to go home. To the home that he's written and taught about all these decades. But one of the coolest things was that as he got weaker and weaker in recent weeks, between August, I think it was 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, he did four posts and he chose on his last post, his last teaching in this world to describe what the Bible says about what happens to a Christian when they die. And he was able to do that not only because of all his study and God's spirit in his life, but because he understood grace and he knew there was hope and he knew that he was going on to what he called God's plan A+. Plus. A few weeks before that, he, he posted something about how he said, I'd like plan A where God heals me of this. But he goes, but there's a plan A+, plus that God has if he doesn't heal me here. Hope through the grace of God. Do you have that hope? Do you need that hope? Today we're going to sing about that power of the blood of Jesus to take away our sins. Let's respond to his grace. Whatever ways we need to, we're going to reaffirm a commitment we might have made years ago. Let's do it today. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's word and follow his son, Jesus Christ.